This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Work Talk. This is a podcast series by The Straits Times to help you work smarter, think deeper, and get ahead in your work life. I'm Chris. And I'm Hongyi. In today's podcast, we're talking about the great renegotiation, or should we say, the great disconnect? Ever since pandemic safety measures were relaxed in late April, workers have begun returning to the office. Back is the regular commute and hours of face time with bosses. But are workers happy doing so? Here at ST, we receive multiple survey reports on the workplace each week. They all show that Singapore workers are expecting more balance, more pay, more empathy, and more flexibility from their employers. On the other hand, economic numbers show that bosses are facing higher inflation, supply chain difficulties, and a looming global recession, as well as harder challenges finding workers arising from all these. When we work as expectations and employers' pressures come to an equilibrium, how will the two sides meet? Has the future of work changed forever? We're delighted to have Mr. Kurt Wee. Kurt is president of the Association of Small and Medium Enterprises. And also joining us is cybersecurity executive Donovan Chia, who also runs a podcast called Very Clear Cut for Young Working Adults. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Hi. Afternoon. Hi, Chris. Hi. And hello, Donovan. Hello. Donovan, may we start with you? Your career history is quite interesting. You've been into public service and SME, and now you work in a multinational. How many years have you been working and how would you describe the factors that made you change your career trajectory, you know, between these three very different environments? I have been in public service for four years. And I think after some time, I thought it would be nice to venture out there to have a feel of the private sector. So I thought I would go to an SME since there was an opportunity for me to do so, stay there for a year, and then another opportunity came knocking. So in that sense, my career hasn't been planned per se by someone else. Rather, it has been opportunities that came knocking on my door. I thought it was a great time to learn something somewhere. And now I'm quite happy because the MNC is huge. There's so many things to learn. It's pretty much dependent on the learning opportunities that I could identify for myself. Maybe I'll just go back to the public service a little bit because even in four years, I took on different roles in my time there. And I think when you talk about learning opportunities, you know, as a cybersecurity professional, it's uh, different perspectives of it. In my stint in the public service, I did both uh, the ethical hacking stuff, but I also went on to train mid-careerists who wanted to transition into cybersecurity. And boy, that was hard. (laughs) That was a tough job. Then I went to an SME where, you know, P&L starts to matter, right? You cannot do a job that loses you too much money, right? (laughs) What did you do in an SME? I went back to my ethical hacking role. Uh, So for those people who uh, wonder what ethical hacking means, uh, we take on the role of, you know, a hacker, right? We will try to simulate break-ins of IT systems. And then if we find problems, like for example, we manage to do so, we will tell you that there are certain issues with your IT systems that need to be fixed. Mm, so like, um, how has that scope changed when you moved to the MNC? That has changed because where I work currently, the systems are much larger. They are more complicated, which means there is a lot more that goes into the design aspect of the system as opposed to relying on, say, some simple, well-established IT best practices 
Like for example, right now in my current workplace, I deal with complicated train systems, aviation systems, and these are systems that have to be kept running. Uh, So you have a very tight window where you cannot just say, I will just stop the system for one day, I will conduct my security testing, right? Yeah, so would you say that, you know, you mentioned opportunity quite prominently in uh, your narration. So would you say your aspirations at career moves are typical of young workers in Singapore in terms of seeking out opportunity, in terms of the kind of dynamism, you know, rather than staying in the same place and developing that depth within the same place? Okay, for me, I think when I ask some of my friends, they are also quite opportunity-driven. So during the pandemic, a number of them have shifted firms and they have also pivoted from the public service because those were where I spent four years at. So I knew quite a number of people. They shifted to a variety of other technology firms. Some went to Chinese technology firms, some went into the American ones. But the idea is that there has always been this sentiment that there is more to learn outside. And I think it's not just the opportunity. I think there's also the part about impact. Uh, Young professionals like myself want to find work that can impact other people in meaningful ways. And if the impact can be scaled, all the better. Uh, So is it then necessary that you have to change jobs and change industries on a kind of a more compressed timeline compared to what's seen in the past to do so in terms of the impact? I think though, Companies have changed. I think the whole question of company loyalty has come into question these days. Like if you speak to people in Japan in the past, they will say one company, one lifetime, right? And now you start having conversations go, should I stay in, how long should I stay in the company before jumping to the next one, right? So you see the narrative has shifted. And I'm sure from Kurt's perspective, uh, this afflicts the SMEs quite a lot because in SMEs, you hear of people jumping quite often as well because they say comments like, oh, it's an SME, there's limited scale, there's limited opportunity, they're going to go to another one. Yeah, I'm sure, Kurt, you have a lot to say about these kind of perceptions that, you know, they might not be totally warranted The SMEs face that kind of could compound the hiring challenges, I imagine. I think for a start, it's, it's great to actually see and hear about somebody like Donovan that actually really is on a career learning kind of a uh, career building pathway, right? It's very heartening for us to hear uh, how he have the public service experience and then moving on to private sector. And I think that that's really, really a great way of developing our human talent in, in Singapore. The SMEs have actually been trying to improve uh, all their hiring conditions and all their hiring uh, practices to make sure that they are more competitive. I think it's it was a marked uh, improvement probably about seven or eight years ago, uh, you know, with the labor tightening that sort of started in 2011. Then SMEs realized that, you know, it's not business as usual. So a lot of SMEs actually stepped up in terms of looking at how they can attract and then how they can retain. Of course, as in all economies, there are progressive good SMEs and there are also those that are quite ordinary and there are also those that are a bit of a legate. Um, typically, you know, what the SMEs do have to offer to young people is actually a very flat organization where, you know, you go in and you get to go hands-on very, very quickly. Sometimes there's someone to train you. Sometimes there isn't 
much of a guidance and, and sometimes it's a bit of a school of hard knocks. But at the same time, uh, in a very, very compressed and short period of time, you understand that you're, you belong to an organization that is constantly in survival and growth mode. And how do you make one plus one equals to three? And how does an organization uh, at a smaller scale work to sustain itself and grow? It's a very, very valuable career lesson because all big companies go through this period of seeding and then initial phase of development, growth, expansion, and then they start to realize that they have to corporatize or they have to institutionalize and then they have to get more sophisticated with their risk management and then they grow to become larger companies. Correct. I want to talk a little bit about branding. So, you know, we all know that SMEs got its own rewards in terms of the experience because you are doing a greenfield project, you are in a growth phase, getting Series B, Series C funding is very, very exciting. But the perception that for young people like, you know, young talents like Donovan is not sexy. But at the same time, we are seeing that in the last maybe decade, a lot of SMEs have changed. The, the profile of SMEs have changed. We're getting a lot of fintech, medtech, you know, and, and, and very high level SMEs coming to Singapore. But do you think the perception of SMEs among young workers has changed? And do you think that SMEs are doing enough to change their image to attract young workers? I think if you, if you look at, uh, SMEs now, they are no longer just putting together one plus one equals to two, and then they, they build a mode of business. They are also conscious of things like ESG or CSR, conscious of branding their companies, conscious of the fact that they have to digitalize and they have to regionalize. Their, their weakness is really uh, quite a number of them are not very deeply resourced. So they have to work very resourcefully, smartly, and creatively to make one plus one equals to not two, but three or four or five. And for young people, I think it's a very, very valuable journey and experience for them to look at how an entity can be made from a blank sheet of paper to actually a cash flow generating sustainable machine. And, and that company then have a chance to actually grow and, and corporatize and even one day be institutionalized. So Kurt, um, so on that point about scaling, right, do you think that, you know, with the kind of notions of employee loyalty changing, right, will we be seeing less employees really staying along for the long haul to see that process of scaling? And uh, do you think it will affect ability of companies to scale because, you know, you need to hire someone new, you have to retrain them, there's a lot of churn here? No, I, I certainly think that, you know, it's, it's a factor that will impact companies definitely when uh, employees are less committed in the medium and longer term. I'm not sure whether questioning the loyalty is the right word because, you know, the company has a responsibility to actually play its role as a good employer to be able to retain and, and also provide a career pathway for the employees as well. So it, it's, it's not so much just onerous on the employee's commitment and, and, and loyalty. But I think the company has a role to play in that as well, in uh, a training, grooming, and, and delivering a, a good career growth path and, and experience as well. You know, So I think that the young people's mindset and sometimes where they change job too quickly or they job hop too quickly, 
I think that also affects larger organisations. I don't think it's a something that affects SMEs only. Certainly, it affects SMEs more because SMEs are, are less resourced and, and probably, you know, have a, a slightly less to offer uh, from perspective of some. So employers actually need to take a perspective that you can only grow as fast as you have good people, as well as you can develop good careers. So, so you know, in a Singapore's context, that becomes a lot more synonymous and important for SMEs. Donovan, you know, tell us about your one-year experience in the SME and what, you know, would you say to Kurt about how SMEs can do better to retain young talents? I remember on my first day in, in the SME, uh, my boss gave me an assignment straight away. Uh, he said, once you have your laptop, uh, you go on an assignment. And so I understood what Kurt was saying when he, when he said you will get down cracking very, very quickly, right? In that one year, it was a short period of time. But what we managed to do was quite substantial, simply because, as Kurt mentioned, it was a very flat organization, which means you don't have to seek approvals if you want to, say, implement new capabilities. All you need to do is to convince your boss that's a great idea, do it, because you don't have that much time to mull over it, and then figure out if the industry is willing to accept that, uh, which is what I did pretty much in the SME, right? Back then, they conducted mostly the ethical hacking kind of assignments, but also brought in the ability for them to conduct risk assessments, maturity assessments, gap analysis, you know, like do, doing this kind of um, work that assesses organizations' uh, cybersecurity posture. So I would say that I would agree with Kurt in the sense that uh, for young employees, indeed, it's a great learning experience and I appreciated my one year of time there. And in fact, taking that experience and bring it to an MNC is helpful as well because it re-energizes an MNC, right? Because the MNC also likes, uh, also thinks about building new business functions, uh, creating new opportunities and finding new ways to offer a more integrated value offering. So I think uh, when we try to look at the SMEs, the MNCs, or even other kinds of um, companies, right? Could be a sole prop or whatever. I think it's not that helpful if we just uh, dichotomize it into SMEs have these problems, MNCs don't, or vice versa. I think the conversation has to be at the ecosystem level. Like people are going to move because people are going to feel that they have certain abilities that can, that they can do justice, do in better ways, right? Like, you know, I've done something at a certain point in my life, I want to move on for a new challenge. Some people have that and it's certainly a valid motivation for people to move. Having said that, we have to ask ourselves at the end of like 10 to 15 years, has the Singapore ecosystem improved overall? And that is why I think when we talk about notions like company loyalty, my personal view is that I think it's more of a partnership, right? It's a contract between the employer and the employee. The employer wants to move the business in a certain way the employee needs to at least agree to that contract before the employee will be a fit, right? Otherwise, they'll be, they'll be having conflict over how the business should move. But at the end of the day, the employee also has a right to ask for career progression. What, what are the opportunities available? How can they progress, right? And I think the way progress is defined is going to be different depending on where you go. And in fact, there's not even an SME versus MNC thing, right? Because it depends on the business direction of whatever firm that uh, we are talking about. Thing for me, since I come from the tech sector, we are very much about growth. 
Yeah. So, uh, Donovan, so would you ever consider moving back to an SME from your MNC role? And what would convince you to move back to an SME? Wow, this is this is a loaded question because <laughs> my employer might be listening to this, right? But I think I'll just try to answer it in some broad strokes once again. I think people move for many reasons. Some people want to do justice to their own abilities, as I mentioned, right? So if they feel that they have maxed out their ability to contribute, they may decide to look for a new challenge. And some people I know are really great at building new things, but they may not be very good at sustaining them, right? So they may decide, okay, I'm done with a certain role in a certain uh, firm. I'm going to move to another firm to build new things. So I think that's one reason why people move. Some people might move because of different priorities in life. Like uh, I know some peers who have got married and they already have children. They may have to ask themselves, do they really have time to focus on all these opportunities? So conversations like work-life balance come in. And once you talk about work-life balance, once again, you see uh, employers need to understand that there are so many different demands that employees would have in order to, to contribute productively, right? So on that point, uh, perhaps I'd like to speak to Kurt again about what have you heard? You know, you've been involved with SMEs for over 20 years through the association. So what are some of the most resourceful things you've heard of from your, your experience with SMEs to extract, attract and retain workers that perhaps nobody else would be able to do or it will be harder to do? I think the smaller SMEs, the, the small and micro ones, they tend to be a bit more uh, family-oriented in terms of uh, how you're expected to run your role responsibly. Uh, they're not so much uh, a kind of a punch card uh, uh, type of a culture. They will start to only sort of make a fuss if they find that you, you're really a little bit out of line with your responsibilities. So, so work-life balance for, I think, in the small and micro space, I would say the employees are generally very understanding and, and are relatively flexible in terms of uh, allowing that and working with that. Even more so over the last two and a half years, you know, at the pace at which we've digitalized work from home and work from anywhere or work from workplace becomes uh, something that's essential and necessary uh, in order for the company's uh, operational survival mode. So unless the role is very operational-centric, very shift and time-oriented, I've seen some employers, they are, they are cutting down to uh, teams of employees based on six to seven-hour shifts instead of expecting that eight-hour shifts or, or nine-hour shift. And then they, they allow the employees to actually... Uh, have a bit more time flexibility. So, so I've seen uh, some F&B operators that are operating on, on smaller hours of uh, shifts so that, you know, their employees, uh, also for them to actually be able to source for more uh, part-time oriented employees as well. But, but generally, I think uh, SMEs are quite conversant and quite willing to work with employees on even their personal needs. It's less regimental. So Kurt, you know, workers have been returning to office since late April. There's a lot of kind of sussing out what the employers want. Is it four days in the office, three days? And then for the employers, it's sussing out what the workers want. If I don't give them three days, will they leave? You know, if I give them two days? So we are seeing this kind of great reconciliation and renegotiation of employers and, and employees. When do you think the situation was stabilized and that the two groups, you know, would come to kind of a very comfortable arrangement. When would that happen? 
I think the employment phase is going through some kind of transition right now. It's not really settled down yet. We're just coming out of COVID. We're entering into inflation. Uh, and, you know, we're in the state of economy and activity whereby a lot of companies are rehiring. So there's a lot of poaching or job hopping. And uh, people may, for not a very substantial wage increase, then job hop around. And I think this would need some time to sort of settle down probably over the next four or six months. And then in terms of uh, employees that are wanting to work more or less and employers thinking whichever it is, I think this would eventually have to settle down on the priority of that particular business type and operation. And whether it's an employer or an employee, you have to conform to the business operational needs. And the business will eventually hire, rehire, hire, rehire until they have the right fit of people. What I am concerned about is really the fact that we we are running into a phase where potentially we may have stagflation, you know, inflation with a stagnant a recessive economy. And, and uh, if you have a workforce that may not be very realistic and you think that wages can just keep skyrocketing and productivity stays and, and meanwhile rents are going up and, and margins are compressed and uh, there is uh, a lot of social noise to say hey why you increase your price and why you increase your price then you know employees are actually currently under pressure from all sides so that's what I'm worried about Donovan would you say your peers you know your friends are they realistic about their job expectations right now? They will be very presumptuous for me to try to judge for all my peers. But I think it depends on sector. Uh, because some sectors, indeed the pandemic has shown us how we could work, right? And I think uh, to respond to Kurt, I'm not sure if it will take only four to six months. It could take way longer than that for things to stabilize. Uh, this job hopping uh, conversation has been on in quite a number of people's minds uh, up to now, which is quite strange because the macroeconomic indicators all don't look good. There's stagflation, you have... I heard even in the tech sector in the US, you are starting to hear the word retrenchment. And that is a word that we haven't heard in quite some time in the tech sector. Suddenly, people started to realize that you could get fired, you could get retrenched. So it's hard to say whether my peers have realistic expectations, but I think... What is perhaps easier to say is that at some point in time, the job hopping has to stabilize simply because uh, no one's going to, no one in their right mind is accepting a 15% year on year increase in wages as a result of job hopping. It doesn't make any sense unless your margins are that good. And the only industries where I heard such great margins. I'm not so sure if they are talking about such great margins anymore. You know, the Web 3.0 stuff, right? They were very hyped up over it. And then now you have the and you have Luna that crashed. I'm not so sure whether they have to recalibrate expectations there as well. So it's just not normal, right? And I guess we all shouldn't look at wages as the primary motivation to move around. So our executive gets to ask the expert a question in every Work Talk podcast. So Donovan, what would your question for Kurt be, you know, given what we've discussed? So I think we've discussed a lot about this whole uh, great employer-employee renegotiation. So I thought I'll ask this question, right? So I think uh, a majority of not only Singaporean workers, 
but also a high number of senior executives are telling surveys, you know, they, they plan to leave their jobs this year or the next. So now I'm asking this question from the perspective of people leaving, not so much from the perspective of people being hired. So do you see an equilibrium to this? I think that I, I don't see so much at a, at a ecosystem level. I see it more so at a single enterprise level when a single enterprise experiences a situation whereby their employees want to leave or, or they are sensing that they have a slightly higher turnover, then you know it is really time for them to reflect and think about their own sense of ability to retain their staff. Maybe the management's a bit mental or the, the, the terms are not right or they are not in the running their business in the right way that uh, can galvanize a strong team and retain a strong team to fight the battle together. So, you know, about a lot of people who are wanting to move and change organization, I, I still see it as a sign of a reopening of the economy post-pandemic. I don't think it's the norm. It really brings a company back to basics in terms of being a good employer, developing good careers, establishing good rapport with your staff and having a serious business trajectory whereby you show all your team together and you wage that battle together. So, Kurt, you know, we're going to make a, a special occasion today and, and would you want to pose a question to Donovan? Uh, I haven't thought about a question for Donovan, but I think what, what would be interesting is in particular to ask, uh, flipping on the other side, what can an employer do to be sufficiently attractive and exciting for young people to say, I'm going to clock my commitment with you for five or six years? Oh, this is a difficult one. Is four years there? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think, okay, I think we have to go beyond the transactional arguments, right? I think if you talk about wages, that is a battle between mercenaries, right? Someone's going to offer a higher wage and eventually no one's going to stay loyal simply because you're just paying mercenaries, right? So I think firms have to sell an exciting story. What is this story? That depends on the kind of people who you're trying to attract and people come in all sorts of different modes. There are different kinds of uh, employees. They're looking out for different stories that they resonate with. Some people like me would resonate with opportunity, will resonate with the latitude of movement, the ability to see new things that we haven't seen before. Some employees might view the idea uh, of sticking around with a growth story, you know, like a, a Rex the Riches story as something inspirational, an ethos that they will be willing to subscribe to and willing to ping ping for the enterprise, you know, they're willing to fight for the enterprise. It is a bit of an army term, right? But I think it has to be a story. It cannot be about numbers. It cannot be about, oh, I'm going to make your package look better. I'm going to give you more leave days. I'm going to make myself, I'm going to give you a ping pong table. You know, nice pantry. I think all of these only work up to a certain point in time because someone can buy you a nicer ping pong table. Someone can give you a nicer pantry, right? It has to be qualitative in my view. It has to be mission statement it has to it has to be reflected in what the company does so that's why this whole you know what the cop what the corporation speaks right how they sell themselves it's not just what they sell in terms of products but what they sell in terms of a mission 
Yep. So Donovan, uh, you 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 early on in your career, you did stay on in the public service for four years, almost up to the five to six year time horizon that Kurt talks about. So I guess to extend Kurt's question, what would have helped you commit to that five to six year horizon, given that, you know, you really tried four years, what would have, what additional things would have gotten you there to five to six years? Okay, I, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say that I am only one, but many ex-employees of the government, I'm only one of the many employees that the government now has. Quite a number of um, friends of mine have stayed in the government for quite a while. And to be fair to the government, they do offer lots of uh, benefits and a compelling mission statement because at the end of the day, uh, public service exists not because it is profit-driven, but because it's there to impact the lives of uh, fellow citizens, right? And I think I still believe in that ethos. Otherwise, I wouldn't be thinking about questions at the ecosystem level because at the end of the day, when we talk about the ecosystem, what are we really talking about? We are really talking about how Singapore as one entity becomes better, you know, regardless of whether it's the public or private sector. So in fact, if anything, I do hope that the public service has more succumbance to the private sector, right? So you don't have to leave the public service to go enjoy some private sector life. You can do a secondment, right? You can go somewhere, uh, have a look at it for a few years, have to worry about PNL, then come back to the public service to say, hey, uh, if you look at things a certain way, we can drive the efficiency of how we offer public services. So we help stretch the taxpayer dollar, right? So I, I don't see it as a dichotomy. You know, we are working hand-in-hand hand for Team Singapore, if you think about it that way. Thank you, Donovan and Kurt. It was a pleasure having you two today. I'm Chris Bu. And I'm Tae Hong Yi. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Work Talk, a podcast by The Straits Times. If you would like to read the stories about the great renegotiation, we've inserted a link in our podcast text description below. We'd love to hear from you about your experience renegotiating your career moves and priorities. So drop us a note with your story. Have a good work week. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.